0: I'm Gab. He's Don. Blue skies over West London now. If uh, if you're wondering why I'm coming to you over the magic of Zoom, well, that's easily explained. Uh, I have COVID, and Jules is on holiday, but that's okay. We're still bringing you a show. Thanks so much to Don for for coming in. We'll be talking about the Finalissima, the champions of Europe taking on the champions of the, uh, South America. Uh, Fallout from from Paris. Uh, Sadio Mani's future. But Don, let's start at a match that uh, you covered last night, near and dear to you, as a former Scotland international, Scotland against Ukraine, I think it's fair to say that most neutrals generally like Scotland um, and will root for Scotland against most opponents. But I think last night, all the emotion and also probably a fair amount of uh, of technical superiority mm. were with you, Ukrainians.
1: I think that's absolutely fair, Gab. Get well soon, by the way. Um, yeah, it was a strange game because Ukraine started really fast, as you'd expect, because they were carrying so much emotion going into the game. But Scotland never got going. Technically, I thought Ukraine were better. Tactically, the manager was far superior. Um, had some fantastic players on the pitch. I thought Malinowski and Zinchenko in the middle of the park absolutely ran the show and Scotland couldn't get anywhere near them in the end. But they were comfortable, Gab. It wasn't like Ukraine went there and sort of defended a little bit and, and Scotland put them in a little bit of pressure, maybe had twenty minutes in the second half. But in terms of how the game went, I mean Ukraine were really, really comfortable. The scoreline didn't flatter them one bit. They were really good.
0: Well, we we saw this Ukraine team uh at the Euros. I watched them in, in person several times and um there is there is some talent there. Maybe maybe they're not on a par with, with the past Ukraine side, but for me, the big question here was, how were they going to? How were they going to be prepared? Um, because obviously, you know, many of these guys, the ones who are based in, uh, in in Ukraine, and it is the majority of the team, they hadn't played competitive club games since the invasion. Uh, they had uh, they had a training camp in Slovenia. They played some friendlies against Barcelona, Mönchengladbach, against uh, against Ampoli, but clearly not the ideal way. To go and prepare for this game. So much emotion. We saw Zinchenko uh, crying the, the day before the game. Um, but is it fair to say that ultimately they showed that it was a professional performance from them as well? Um, they were the better side and they made it count.
1: Yeah, I think a lot in the modern day football gab, is, is, as you know, I think we all talk about the preparation. I mean, You know, preparation can go one or two ways. I mean, I've had games where you've been late for a game, your bus might have got stuck in traffic, and then literally 15 minutes later, you get off the bus, get changed and play, and you play well. So there's different sorts of preparation. Their motivation was obviously absolutely massive for them. Now, emotionally, that must have been difficult for the players to carry into this game. But at the same time, the prize was so big for them and the atmosphere in Hamden was electric. It was really good. Once the game started, you try and put that to one side as a player, then you concentrate on the match, which they'd done really, really well. But I think you were just looking at it aside when you watched the, the 90 minutes unfold that were far superior to Scotland. Scotland could never get going. The tactics act that, that the manager uh, tried in that game, he had. Th- Four the back. He had Stepanenko as the holder midfield player who absolutely bossed John McGinn. John McGinn couldn't think for himself. Steve Clark put John McGinn on the pitch in a position, in the number 10 position. But then he had to figure the problems out. Stepanenko just stood with him and he never sort of lost them. And then the four in front of that and then the one guy up front who ran the channels was excellent. They had really good runners. He had lots of quality in midfield. And it was, it was a poor showing as I've watched Steve Clark's Scotland team over the years evolve. I remember going back to a game against uh, Belgium and Brussels, it feels like two or three years ago, it might have been slightly longer. And they got beaten that game, but they competed really well. This was the poorest I'd seen Scotland play. And I don't believe that was down to the emotion from the, from the Scotland players end. I just think technically, uh, technically, technically, Ukraine was far better. Uh, they approached the game with more intensity. They put Scotland under so much more pressure, and they massively, massively deserved to win the game.
0: Yeah, they they went two 0 up. Uh, it felt like they could have added to it. Then obviously Scotland uh, pulled one back before uh, Ukraine scored on the counter in uh, in garbage time. Uh, next up is is, is is Wales. Wales, who uh, of course they played against. Um, they played against Poland. They they lost two one. It was a Nations League game uh how do you see it going against wales
1: difficult because you don't know how much emotion and how much energy uh ukraine put into that victory against scotland last night so can they recover i expect they will um i think today might be one where they're sitting back and they feel absolutely shattered but once they sort of refocus and go through one of tra- their days of light training Cardiff's it's going to be an amazing atmosphere that'll be absolutely roaring so it's something that ukraine will have to be aware of Um, But I just think you're looking at a team and you're looking at a a team that's fighting for such a big prize. I think, you know, I I don't think there's there's too much between the sides. If anything, I'd have Ukraine slightly favourites, even though that's a slight contradiction because they are playing away from home in a hostile atmosphere. But They'll be used to it. The manager will prep them for that. But once the game kicks off, I think it'll be more or less the same as the the Scotland game where Wales have got technically one or two outstanding players. But team-wise, I think Ukraine will be too strong for them.
0: Yeah, and I think, uh, again... It's going to be one of those games where most neutrals uh, will be 100%, I think, uh, with uh, with Ukraine. Don, we don't want to put the cart ahead of the horse, um, as, as, as they say, but um, should Ukraine advance against Wales, should they qualify for the World Cup, mm. there's going to be a weird situation where, you know, apart from those, I think it's six, seven players, obviously Zinchenko at Manchester City, or Mchuk at Benfica, Malinovsky at Atalanta, but to get from now until November, um, those Dinamo Kiev players, what are they going to do, um, Dinamo Kiev, and obviously uh, uh, other clubs uh, in Ukraine? Because um, it's going to be such a such an odd situation. I know UEFA are looking at, at different solutions. Um, but what is it when you go two, three months without competitive games, um, as a player... I, how does that affect you?
1: Hugely, um, because it knocks you out of your rhythm. I mean, you know, professional footballers these days are finely tuned athletes, and you have to keep going, you have to keep putting the minutes in, your body clock has to be attuned to keeping fit and high level football intense. High-level football, so you know sometimes a little break is good, but anything over sort of a week to ten days, you'd start losing a little bit of rhythm. You might just get a little bit rusty. It's so difficult, when we're talking about the Ukraine angle on the side of it and what they do and how they prepare and, and try and play friendly games and try and keep on top of things. Um, that's before you even start worrying about the nu- nutritional side of things, how much you're eating, how much you're taking in, how many calories you're burning, etc., etc. So for the players, it's going to be one where. It must be so hard for the for the for the coaching staff, for the for the medical team, for the manager, for the coaches. Um, it must be a really tricky one to try and navigate how you try and keep your players at really top level uh, to play competitive football and play their best football.
0: One of the things we see in international football is players playing different positions to what they play in their uh, in their club sides, and uh, you know we we see it with David Alaba when he plays for for Austria. Uh, you know, playing in midfield, sometimes even as a number ten, uh, and obviously we see it with Ukraine with Zinchenko. Now, it's slightly different with Zinchenko because he was an attacking midfielder, he was a number ten before coming to um, to Manchester City. Obviously, at City, he's played left back. Ukraine have two Premier League caliber left backs in Zinchenko and Mikolenko, mm. so he moves into midfield. But I'm guessing the transition for him uh, for him moving to left from left back into central midfield, it's less of a stretch because of the way Manchester City normally plays. I mean, you yeah. often see Cancelo and, and Zinchenko stepping into the middle of the park anyway, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. He, he made the game, Zinchenko last night, Gab, look very, very easy because he's an intelligent player. I, I, I guess I would imagine with Zinchenko and I, I would imagine with most Man City players, you've got to be able to take information on board from your manager. And the contradiction to that is I was watching John McGinn last night And Steve Clark put John McGinn into a number 10 position and he more or less said to John McGinn, right, you're playing as a number 10. And their holder midfield player, their destroyer, Stepanenko, stood on him and John McGinn couldn't really think for himself. He didn't know where to run. He didn't know how to take Stepanenko into different positions. So he was ineffective. I watched Inchenko last night, as you know, playing left back for Man City, being a midfield player before. He stepped into the central position and just made the game look very, very easy. There was great rotation between him and Malinovsky and Stepanenko. Stepanenko had the the brains to sort of go to the right-hand side, then Malinowski was coming in deep, as you saw for the for Yarmolenko first goal, a long ball over the top, quality ball over the top and the finish. But Zinchenko it makes the game look very easy because he's got a good football brain and he takes information on well. He's been schooled by Guardiola and going into that game last night must for him, obviously it must have been difficult because you're switching positions, but I've been a player myself where I played so many different positions. It's actually quite, it's quite enjoyable. It's almost like you're playing one position. I wouldn't say you get bored with it, but when you go into a different position, it's like, oh yeah, I quite fancy this. This is new. And you go into another one, it's like, oh yeah, I'll try my hand at this one. He's such an intelligent player.
0: Yeah, I think you need to have a certain attitude uh, uh, to do that, which you obviously had, done. Yeah. Uh, a, a word on Scotland, uh, and I was struck by this last night uh, doing the FC show with, uh, with, with Craig and, and, and Stevie. And the weird thing is, when you go on international duty, for some of these guys, like, um, and I say this with the greatest of, of respect, guys like um, uh, Dykes up front and, and, and maybe Grant Hanley, when they play for Scotland, they're playing with a higher calibre of players than they are um, in their, uh, for their club side. Yeah. On the other hand, if I'm Andy Robertson, I look up and instead of getting the ball to, to Mo Salah and Sadio Mane, I'm getting it to Lyndon Dykes and Shea Adams, which is not quite the same thing. No. Can you talk a little bit about, about that transition? and Is it is it difficult? Is yeah. it is it a big deal?
1: Yes, it's difficult and it is a big deal. It's hard. Um, As you said, if you're Andy Robertson, you've been tuned to finding Mo Salah for the last three years. you bang it into his feet and you play the game from there. You're playing with Lyndon Dykes, no disrespect whatsoever, but he's one-dimensional. He's very good in the air. I think the first five, ten minutes of the game, he won his flick-ons, but that was about it. He's not technically brilliant where you can wrap balls in at his feet and midfield players like Billy Gilmore and McGregor can try and run off and, and join in. Shea Adams, I think, is a very good player, but better when he's running over the top. So... I think I watched the Scotland game last night, like I've been watching for quite a few years, and you think individually there's some really good players. I thought Aaron Hickey was the standout player for Scotland last night, playing at right wing-back. I thought he was exceptional. He's had a brilliant season, as you know, with Bologna, but he was superb last night. But I think when you look at Scotland, what Steve clark has got to work with, and he's probably got six or seven really, really good, strong players... The rest of it falls a little bit short, and one dimension I think with, with, with one or two players I think is the is the right term to use because international level is a whole new ball game.
0: It, it, it is sad law with with uh, with Scotland when you know you look at Robertson, you look at Tierney, you look at Hickey. Yeah, he played on the right, but obviously he normally plays uh, yeah. left back. You've got <laughs> uh, Tierney, of course, was injured, but when they're all fit, you've got it's ridiculous. Three left backs, right? I know, I know. It's just. <laughs> as, you
1: as, you look, as you look, Scotland produced three unbelievable <laughs> players. Where do they play? All play left back. <laughs>
0: um, I, I wondered about that dynamic, too, because there was one incident when at 2 1, you know, Scotland were charging. I, there was a situation where the ball fell. I mean, the reason I asked that about teammates and making the transition, there was a situation where the ball fell to Andy Robertson's uh, weaker foot um, in the box. And instead of instead of having a pop and, and even just kind of putting his, his laces through it from there, mm-hmm. um, you know he he tried to recover, tried to make a pass. I'm wondering again if that is kind of being on a, on automatic playing for Liverpool, where you're in a great position in the box, it's on your weaker foot. Yeah, you'd still for Liverpool, you'd still want to pass because there's there'll be other guys who are open, other guys who're here. Last night, you know, with hindsight. Maybe he should have taken it because odds are, if he tries to pass it, they're not going to get it back for a while.
1: Exactly. And, that, and that's your thought process when you play for Liverpool and you, you've you got a ball that like you think, oh, it's on my weaker right foot. Should I take a swing at it? Well, no, because there's Sadio Mane, there's Mo Salah, there's Firmino, there's Jota, there's Diaz, etc., etc. et cetera. So you find the best solution, you, 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 you work out and you problem solve. I always think with professional footballers and I say it in commentary and I try to say it, not all of the time because it can get a little bit stale, but... The whole essence of professional sport, whichever sport you're into, if you're watching Roland Garros, if you're watching tennis or golf, it's problem solving. And you watch Andy Robertson last night and he didn't find the best solution. He had a ball on his on his right foot. He could have found with Liverpool a better player last night. He must have been thinking, who do I look for? Oh, they're not there. I'll take the shot on. In the end, he got closed down and made the complete yeah. wrong decision. So he didn't problem-solve in that second. John McGinn had the big chance, Gab. He had, a, he had an open goal. Yes, it was at 2-0, so the scoreline might have been slightly different. It's not just like John McGinn scores, it would have been 2-2 because Ukraine had good chances in the game. But Scotland didn't manage the game last night, Gab. They, they weren't good at problem-solving. It's like they played, they got put into a position. Can we go and beat Ukraine? Can you go and think for yourself? Can you problem solve? And Scotland and not just Andy Robertson, but a fair few of them last night,
0: they weren't good enough. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However, you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the grow with shopify sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash gab jewels all lowercase go to shopify.com slash g-a-b-j-u-l-s now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash gab
1: so gab fanlissima was played last night this is brand new to me what is it
0: Finalissima means ultimate final, and it's uh, it's the winners of uh, of combative so South America, so the the, the Copa America, uh, which is Argentina against the winners of the Euros, uh, Italy. And you know, Argentina trounced Italy, finished three 0 If which is a shame for me personally, because had Italy won, I could have given it the big one and said, "Oh, that's all right. <laughs> this is we don't need to go to Qatar because we're already the world champion." Because Obviously, champions of Europe being champions of South America. Nobody else has ever won a World Cup outside of those two confederations. Of course, I can't even do that because Italy had their rear ends uh, handed to them by by Argentina. Um, it was a very one-sided game. I think Argentina, frankly, could have scored even more. Don. So what's
1: Gab? So I mean, what's happened to Italy? I mean, I know this is going to blow your mind, obviously, because. You know, like me, I am a work and study and I love Italian football, and I just find from the Euros, the scenario over the last 18 months has just been a massive, massive letdown.
0: Look, I, I think it has been a massive letdown. I mean, we've done so many postmortems on why they didn't qualify um, for the World Cup. Again, I, I try to make it a point to separate performance from, from results whenever I can, and the results have been terrible. I don't think the performances have been that bad and you can tie it back to the two games against Switzerland and the game against well where, where Jorginho missed penalties in, in both games. Um but Italy I thought easily had the upper hand uh in certainly in one of them, and against Bulgaria where they mindlessly threw the game away when, you know, they could have scored three or four. Uh and again against Macedonia in the playoffs as well, when um when they dominated it looked like it was on the way to extra time. But, you know, it's football. you got to put the ball in the back of the net. Mm. Uh, this game against Argentina was different. We saw a tremendous Argentina side, Don. We saw an Italy side that, to me, looked, it looked like an end-of-season friendly for them. Mm. And then you can say this is all it was because this isn't a real competition. And, and by the way, for those who wonder about the history of the Finalissima, there's a political reading of it, which is UEFA uh, and the president, Alexander Chefrin and, and Carmel Ball and their president, Alejandro Dominguez, have kind of formed an alliance. Um, they've opened an office in London for for more cooperation between the two. The way perhaps some people see it of trying to balance out Johnny Infantino and FIFA saying we can have our own competitions, we can plan our own stuff. So the game itself, while the versions of this have been played in the past in the, uh, in the 80s and I think early 90s, um, you know this competition is mostly about creating an event the problem is it was an event for argentina they were up for it they, they they weren't just technically better than italy they also ran more they looked hungrier for the italian players without a world cup to look forward to with some nations league games now which feel pretty anticlimactic it felt as if kind of they were going through the motions he played some of the some of the guys that I don't think we're going to see again, people like like Belotti up front, um, yeah. Chiellini, obviously, at the back. He's on his way to to, to LAFC. and But most of all, Argentina looks really good, Don. And Are they
1: back? Are they back, Gab? I, I, was, I was reading the unbeaten in two years. Unbeaten in, what, 31? I think they might
0: say, Lionel Scaloni might say, Don, we've been back for a while. <laughs> you just haven't noticed. <laughs> Lionel Messi, I don't know if this was his best game of the past nine months, um, it certainly was one of his best games. Uh, you know, he had he had that fire. Uh, there's such a great um, understanding with Angel Di Maria and and Lautaro Martinez uh, at the back. They look very very solid. They look very very comfortable. And I'll tell you what, I think people are sleeping on Argentina a little mm-hmm. bit when it comes to the World Cup. Um, you know, I've got three teams that I put ahead of everybody else, which are. Brazil, France, and Spain at this World Cup, but I look around and, and and I factor in the fact that, you know, Lionel Messi, you know, we say, what condition is he going to be in going into the World Cup? Well, World Cup, they're going to get together in November, right? Yeah. He will have had a couple months of league on football, which is not particularly taxing for him, especially if he doesn't want it to be. He's going to have some Champions League knockout games, but he can kind of really, really prepare physically for this tournament, likely to be his last World Cup, and I'm wondering, could that be enough to put Argentina over the top? Oh, there you go,
1: Gab said it. Argentina favorites for the World Cup.
0: <laughs> Easy there. I'm not going to quite go that far, but um, but but it's obvious. I think that uh, I, I I think we are sleeping on them, and I would put them maybe in that second group uh, with England. Uh, once it gets to the knockouts, you know, you don't need to be good all the time. You just need to be good. For a couple weeks uh, every four years to win a World Cup. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com gab. Just go to indeed.com gab right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com gab. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, enough finalissima. How about some quick hits? More fallout from the chaos at the Start de France for the Champions League final. Don, both UEFA and the French authorities are going to launch investigations, but in the meantime, we already know that one of the early claims that forty thousand Liverpool fans showed up with fake tickets um is incorrect. It was actually less than three thousand, according to French police.
1: Well, 3,000 is 3,000 too many, but rightly so, having an investigation gap, because I had friends um, who were at the game outside the stadium and, you know, they were really, really edgy. They were quite nervy at, at some of the scenes that they were seeing. I mean, I mean, fake tickets is just absolutely ridiculous. But the scenarios that we saw outside the stadium in 2022 should never, ever happen. You should be able to go to a football match these days and be comfortable. Um, I had a friend who was quite handy, shall we say, a boxer who's about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, can look after himself. And he even said, he said the the scenes outside the stadium were, were quite chilling. He went, there was locals that were sort of uh, trying to get at young kids and women and, and, and mugging and, and, and thieving, etc, etc. And the scenes outside the stadium were quite distressing. I mean, there was some brilliant quotes from some Real Madrid fans who I thought, came across outstanding after the game and they were saying if the Liverpool fans weren't as well behaved there might have been one or two tragedies so I think in the end looking back at it we were quite lucky that there was no fatalities Um, but there certainly has to be an investigation into what happened because 40,000 fake tickets tickets, as was alluded to was obviously way way off the mark and that was a ludicrous thing for UEFA to try and Put it, the Liverpool fans well, was, it was outrageous a, I thought
0: I mean to be fair it wasn't UEFA it was, it was the French Interior Minister um, oh, yeah. who came out uh, and, and, and said this I mean you know you said 3,000 fake tickets is is is, is 3,000 too many I would agree to be fair I think a lot of these it's not a case of Liverpool fans sitting on their computers at home and, and tr- making mm. fake tickets it's people buying tickets on secondary markets and being sold Fake tickets. I think that's that part of it. I think is is one thing which hopefully we can we can solve pretty simply. I think you know Mm. Liverpool as a club have handled themselves admirably, but one lesson that's obviously it's obvious to learn here is no more paper tickets. There's no reason these can't all be digital tickets. They were all digital tickets uh, at the Euros. Um, Liverpool chose to print tickets for whatever reason. I think we have to accept that you know in 2022. These need to be digital yeah. tickets, which are much harder to um, harder to forge. But I think the other big thing is, I don't know that we'll get justice out of this. I just want us to learn a lesson here so that this never happens again. And because Same. this can't happen like this. It's great. It's mad. Same.
1: Totally agree. Uh, Gab, Milan have new owners. Uh, Redbird Capital have taken a majority stake in the club. 1.2 billion.
0: Yeah, and... If it sounds like a lot, it's I think because it is a lot. It's the second highest uh, valuation of, of any football club that's been sold after Chelsea. Chelsea obviously sold uh, very recently. And, you know, that's $1.2 billion for a club that doesn't have a stadium, um, you know, or certainly don't own their own stadium, of course, um, although they do have a plan to do it. One of the interesting things is they're taking a the majority stake, but the current owners, uh, Elliot, are going are gonna to stick around. Um, I think that's very important in terms of continuity. I think it's very important also that Paolo Maldini and and Ricky Masada are going to go um, and uh, and extend their contracts, which were expiring. Um, So the the deal is actually going to close in September. There are certain technical things that need to happen. But it's a big step, and Redbird Capital, of course, have a certain expertise in this. They are minority owners in Fenway Sports Group who own Liverpool. And uh, they also own Toulouse uh, in uh, in France. You'd like to think more investment on the pitch, then? Um, I still think they're going to they're going to they're going to operate the way they've done before. They're going to look for value. They're going to try to be smart. It's not you know it's not a case of just writing checks. You can't do that in the modern game. But I think you know the way they showed with signings like um, like Fernandes, Rafael Lau, uh Kalulu, and whatnot. You know they're pretty good at, at finding Salamakers, Mignon. <laughs> they're pretty good at finding value. Build are reporting that Bayern are prepared to offer 30 million euros for Sadio Mane, but Liverpool are holding out for 50 million. Don, given his age and his contractual situation, you think they'll just meet in the middle?
1: I think they probably will, but it feels like to me, and I know and I understand I'm going to be massively in the minority here, but I'd be all into keeping Marne rather than Mo Salah. I think his form is incredible. I think he's never a problem to the manager. There's no stories. I think the job that he does for, for club and country is absolutely sensational. The work he does away from football, incredible. Um, I don't know. It feels like a massive loss this one, Gab, if they let Mane go. I think he's one of these players where... He's dependable. When he first came in from Southampton, he played on the right-hand side and then Mo Salah come in and Sadio Mane got shifted into a left-hand side position on the on the left side. Then Diaz come in, then he got shifted as a centre-forward. And he just plays all the positions incredibly well. And I understand, as I said, I'm going to be in the minority. But €30 million euros to me seems a little bit cheap. And this is, I wouldn't say worrying times, but it's, it's times for Liverpool fans now because they are flying and they think they're they think they're really going places, which they are under Jurgen Klopp. To lose Sadio Mane, I honestly feels like Gab. It could be a bit of a big blow.
0: Well, on the flip side, of course, if he doesn't extend, you lose him for nothing. And it's interesting what you say about um, about Mohamed Salah and how maybe you know if you have to sacrifice, you, you sacrifice him. I don't know if Mohamed Salah has has the same market at this stage. I'm not saying one player is better than the other. But mm. the offer for Mane is there. Um, the willingness of Mane to move on is there. Salah said he's going to be back next season. He hasn't said he's necessarily going to extend his contract, but he said he's going to be back. So um, mm. I, I don't know. I think Liverpool, not you know, they're just somewhat hamstrung on this. On the flip side, they got Diaz and Jota because they knew they were going to face the situation.
1: Okay. So on June 16th, Barca members are going to vote on a CVC deal. Gab, what are the implications here?
0: So, essentially, CVC is private equity group. Uh, they've signed a deal with um, virtually every other club uh, in La Liga, but not with Real Madrid. Basically, the way it works, CVC, I'm really going to dumb this down, CVC say, okay, we're going to give each club a big lump of cash, um, some of which they can use on players, most of which they can use to upgrade their stadiums or whatnot. Uh, in exchange, I'm going to want a percentage of commercial income and media rights for, I think it's next 50 years. So Oof. in some ways, you're getting the money now, but some people say you're kind of mortgaging the, your, your future mm-hmm. a little bit. The implications are important because Barcelona still have very severe um, uh, spending cap re- restrictions. I'm not sure what the right decision is because there's so many elements, um, but basically, uh, they need to do this. The, the argument to do this is going to be we need to do this so that we can uh, kickstart our our summer uh, transfer market. Sticking with Barcelona, multiple sources reporting that Manchester United are keen on Frankie de Jong. Though maybe he's not so keen on moving. Um, Does this make (laughs) sense to you, Don? What would you do if you were Frankie?
1: If I was Frankie de Jong, I wouldn't go to Man United. I think Man City, if you're going to go anywhere, seems a better fit to me uh, with their style. I think going into Man United at the minute under Ten Hag feels like a little bit of a lottery. We're not sure how much money and what quality of players are going to be coming through the door I mean obviously a brilliant player so from Man, U- Man United's point of view, I mean why not target him because he's a brilliant player um, and Ten Hag obviously knows him and his style would certainly and I say this loosely fit Man United but he's too good in my opinion for Man United I think he's an absolutely wonderful player. Uh, Romelu Lukaku continues being linked with a move back to Inter I mean Romelu Lukaku's story again Gab what's going on here?
0: Well basically uh, it all we know so far is that his tax lawyer went and spoke to Inter and he's willing to take a, a pay cut, something like 15 to 20% uh, to help facilitate a loan move, if that is what Chelsea want to do. It's not at all clear. Uh, they still have to meet with Tuchel. They have to meet with the new owners. Um, so stay tuned. But he is willing to take a pay cut. Paul Pogba's time at Manchester United has come to an end and he leads the club as a free agent. Don, it's fair to say he didn't fulfill expectations, but he's not entirely to blame either. Since you love percentages, (laughs) I want you to tell me how much is down to injuries, how much is down to the club uh, and the managers he had, and how much is down to Pogba himself.
1: Oh, there's a lot of it down to Pogba himself, Gab. There has to be. I mean, I would imagine something like 75% down to Paul Pogba because, you know, you take away the players that he's playing with, the different managers, etc. You've still got to be professional. You've still got to have pride in your performance, doesn't matter what you do if you're a professional footballer you wake up every day and you're playing obviously for the for the badge on the front but you're you're playing for the name on the back as well you're representing yourself your family your reputation so I mean only Man United could have a player lose him on a free pay a hundred million pound for him and lose him on a free again I mean I don't know where he goes I don't know what you think whether it's PSG whether it's back to Juve Um, there's a talented player in there but to be considered the world's best, and I know the talent's there, and he's won a World Cup and he's won trophies, you have to be incredibly consistent. You look at people who play in this right. position, people like Luka Modric, five Champions Leagues, ridiculous amounts of titles and trophies behind him. You wonder why Paul Pogba can't get this thing going.
0: I Maybe it's just all this hanging out with Jules that I've done, but <laughs> I'm much more charitable towards, uh, towards Pogba than you are. I think the injuries played a big part. I think the zoo with the managers coming and going played a big part, and I think there's something about. And you might be able to relate to this: big, tall central midfielders who've got a little bit of skill. When things go badly, they're often the ones who are targeted the most, aren't they, Don?
1: Why? I mean, he's still got so much ability, Gab. I mean, if if I said <laughs> if I if if some, someone asked me a question the other day, and you might you might be able to expand on it and say more, and someone said to me. Name Paul Pogba's best games in a Man United shirt, and I said the game against Man City, where I think he scored a brace and he was brilliant second half. And then you go, I think that's about it. I can't remember too many.
0: You well, know, Player of the Season, and then when they won the Europa League, no. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, I, and. I I, look, I, I think obviously there's there's some responsibility there. I just I also can't remember that many games where he was terrible and he gave off the vibe that he's not trying I think a lot of it has to do with his price tag with the way he looks on the pitch and that sometimes prompts people to come out and accuse him of not even putting in effort and I I think certain players maybe who stand out more often have to deal with it Um, I've seen other United players really mail it in as well during this time Yeah but But not
1: not many have have cost a hundred million though
0: no, that's fine. But then let's come out and say there's a different standard for him. But you put in effort, you put in effort. I mean, on the performance side, sure. But the effort side, I don't know. I just think he's got to put up with a lot of crap that mm. other people people might not have put up with.
1: Uh, Gattuso may be back in the game um, hearing stories about maybe he's joining Peter Lim's Valencia gap.
0: Yeah, he's uh, reportedly going to take over from Javier Bordalas. The deals, um, they have an agreement on principle. Um Catuza now represented by George Mendes and obviously George Mendes very close um, to, to uh, very close to Valencia and close to Peter Lim. It's always weird because, you know, in terms of style, Valencia fans have got to be among the most demanding in the world. And the fact that they've had to put up with, with Peter Lim and I mean, all this American nonsense all these years, I part of me really feels for them. Bordalas was never going to be the answer simply because of his style of play, in my opinion. And then on top of that, the results didn't come either. What Catuzo does really, really well is he's really good at... He's, he's a good man-manager and he's good at getting the fans to like him and, and then making everybody feel part of it. greater he? whole. He
1: connects, doesn't he? Those connects Valencia- Sorry. He's a good connector, isn't he, between fans and players.
0: Oh, completely. Completely. Um, he'd be the first to say that. I mean, those Valencia fans who go out and kind of expect sparkling attacking football. I don't think you're going to get that necessarily from Gattuso, but um, I, I wish him well, and he's been very keen to go abroad. Obviously, he linked to the Spurs' job last year. Um, good for him. It's a new experience. It's only going to make him a better manager. But whether this is going to put Valencia over the top, I still think there's much deeper issues, and I think we're only going to see Valencia back for real once Peter Lim is just a bad memory. You know, Messi says the best team doesn't always win the Champions League. Don is he needlessly trolling Real Madrid or is he simply speaking the truth?
1: I think there's a little bit of both in there. Ex-Barca <laughs> leaves a little bit on Real Madrid. Uh, listen, I, I think when you look over the years, Gab, I think he sort of got a point. I think everyone thought that Liverpool were favourites going into the game. I certainly did. I, I wasn't sure that Real Madrid's style could handle the, the pressing and the intensity of Liverpool. Um, maybe go back to Jose's Porto days. They probably weren't the best team in the tournament, but they got the job done. Di Matteo's Chelsea, they won the Champions League. They weren't the best team in the competition. But I think we've got to pay Real Madrid massive amount of respects. I mean, to do what they've done, I mean, I, I, very quickly, I can remember going back to match day one or two when they got beat off Sheriff, and you think this team can no way win the Champions League. And they struggled against Inter in the group stages, scored a last-minute goal. They were poor in that game. But then you fast-forward a few months and you go, look at the sides that they've beat. I mean, teams like PSG, French champions, great team in Chelsea, Man City and Liverpool, the best teams in England. So I think it feels about right that Real Madrid won it, but I still think Lionel Messi is having a little dig. But in the back of his mind, he's thinking,
0: <laughs> were they the best team? I, I I don't know why this is so controversial or such a bizarre thing to say. I mean, Chelsea won it last year, and I didn't think they were the best team in Europe last year. Um, But being the best and deserving to win are two different things. It's a knockout competition. There's no question. Because of what you said as well, uh, Don, the teams they beat to get here, um, you can deserve to win something Mm. and not necessarily be the best team in Europe in that season. I think it's pretty simple. Uh, Real Madrid fully deserve this. But
1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So Chelsea, I mean, the ongoing story at Chelsea, Gab, Marina Granovskaia maybe be departing Chelsea soon.
0: Yeah, I obviously, you know, Todd Boley and his group having taken over, they, they suggested that, you know, maybe they might want to keep Marina Granovskaia. She's been such a huge part of Chelsea's success, Chelsea's ability to i don't want to say balance the books but get a lot of bang for buck out of their books um in the last few years um and she's known as being very good with contracts and whatnot um there's certainly pressure from the government for for her to move on and i think that has to do with the fact that that she's russian um she may want to move on uh also because she's due a bonus if she does move on um, interesting suggestion the, the new owners seem to really like the sporting director at Atletico Madrid who's actually an Italian guy although he's been there for God, feels like 10 years now a guy named Andrea Berta I think if he comes in I think he's going to be much more uh, as like a pure sporting director and they'll still want to get somebody in to do uh, the contracts and more sort of the, the financial management side of things having missed out on Kylian Mbappe Real Madrid are now linked to Richarlison John, as an Everton guy, you probably don't want to see this happen, but would it be a good option?
1: For Real Madrid or for Richarlison? For for both. For Richarlison, it would be an unbelievable move. Um, I think when you're coming down from potentially signing Kylian Mbappe to Richarlison, they're nowhere near the same player. They're not anywhere near the same levels. Um, What I would say about Richarlison is towards the end of the season, and I questioned the attitude of and the character of quite a few Everton players. And I, and I thought they were struggling at one point, Gab. I thought they were dead and buried. I didn't see any character in any leaders whatsoever. But I have to say, the last couple of months, I think Richarlison really, really led the line well. He showed his attitude. He showed the world what a good player he is. I just don't see consistency levels in him. I see a talent. I see a guy who I'm not sure in his best position just yet, if he's off the left or through the middle. So... For the player, I mean, you'd be pushing for that move to leave Everton for Real Madrid. Of course you would, but in terms of him making Real Madrid a better team, I don't know if you agree. It doesn't sit well with me. It doesn't fit.
0: Well, he's not gonna be Mbappe, obviously, but um, you know, I think they need another guy there. The nice thing about Richarlison is, you know, you could probably play him through the middle if Benzema needs a day off as well. Mm. Um and you know, <laughs> They have to. They now need to find a solution. And, and he's a couple of years younger than the Mohamed Salah, who's you know one of the other guys they've been linked with. But uh, yeah, it is. It is a step up. But, you know, we're still talking about Brazilian international, yep. possible World Cup winner in December. Yeah.
1: Gab, this is a tragic story. I mean, horrible in 2022. But my old boss, Alan Pardu has resigned as technical director and coach of CSKA Sofia after his own fans racially abused some of his players.
0: Um. Yeah, it is an awful story. I'll tell you what, I mean, you're going to tell me since you worked for him that he's a wonderful man and so on. Uh, I don't know the guy when he was over here. Uh, I didn't find him particularly likable. Um, Some of the things he said and obviously some of the stories linked to him. But I have to say, um, you know, massive kudos to to Alan Pardew. Uh, He showed character. He showed integrity. He he did the right thing. He made a stand. Um, What happened here was... Uh, seska were, uh, were were in the cup final. They lost. The fans were angry. Uh, a group of fans showed up um, at at, uh, at their next league game, and I think at the training ground as well, with bananas, hurling insults at, at some of the club's black players. And and he just said, "No, I'm not going to stand for this. I don't want to be a part of it." um we've talked about how his experience in in Bulgaria has been great and. You know, he's met some wonderful people worked with some wonderful people by the way kudos as well not many um, English coaches have have the guts to go and work abroad or, or are willing to take that opportunity he did um, but he took a stand and 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 hopefully people people will notice and because this is entirely unacceptable so while it is certainly tragic and, and horrible what happened I also take the positives out of it that people in the game, um, are saying no more, and we're not going to work under these under these circumstances. But tell me, is he actually a lovely man?
1: We didn't get on. We hated each other. Oh, okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we actually hated each other. What what I would say, in all fairness to Alan Pardew, is his coaching. And when he puts a tracksuit on, Gab, he's a very very good coach. As an individual, he uh, he didn't get the best out of three or four of us, shall we say, experienced players. Didn't like his attitude. A little bit flash. Uh, not for me.
0: Well, but I think on this occasion, he certainly certainly redeemed himself. Yeah. The PFA have released their shortlist for player of the year. So there's Kevin De Bruyne, Sadio Mane, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, Mohamed Salah, Virgil van Dijk, and Harry Kane. Now, this is voted on by the players, and they return their ballots stupidly early. But still, you're a bit surprised there's no room at the end for Hongren Son. 100%.
1: 100% how Son is not in that conversation, I will never know. And I get it, when you win the big trophies, you're going to be propelled into into that conversation. And I love Kevin De Bruyne. I think he's an amazing player. I think one of the best in the world. But my perception of last season, I don't know if you agree, was he had probably three or four really outstanding months. At the start of the season, he had an injury, couldn't really get any rhythm, wasn't playing at Kevin De Bruyne levels, I must say, not my level, Kevin De Bruyne levels. So how he's got in... I understand it because he's won the Premier League, of course, and went deep into the Champions League. I get it because he's a brilliant player. But for not to have Son in gab seems a mystery well, to me.
0: I, I, I think I'm right in saying that what happens is these ballots get returned. I mean, they only announce it now, but the ballots get, get returned sort of stupidly early, like yeah. in April or something. And so Actually, De Bruyne hadn't won the Premier League at that point. But uh, maybe the fact that Son finished with a flurry of goals and Spurs got into... Um, got into the Champions League. The fact that that happened late maybe meant that he flew under the radar a little bit earlier. But then, if that's the case, then you know, why is Harry Kane on there? So, I don't know. I, to me, this is the least meaningful award. It should be more meaningful because these are footballers voting for their colleagues. Mm. But to me, there's just a lot of people who don't take it seriously and I think some people got in here just on reputation.
1: Yeah, well, this is going to interest me, Gab, being a Newcastle fan, because we're going to be linked with everyone in the summer. So, Iran striker, Hugo Etikike, have I pronounced that right? It's being linked with Newcastle. Jules loves him. Is he any good? Am I going to like him?
0: He's very young. Jules made the point that he's still he's still raw. He's still kind of developing to be um, in, in the, the kind of player that he can be. He does so many things well. He holds the ball up. He's, he's fast. He's intelligent. But he's still... Um, a developing player. I'm not going to lie. Jules has seen more of him. I've seen highlights of him. Mm. Um, it's an interesting choice because obviously Newcastle tried to sign him in in January. Um, Rams kept him around. I think the deal, if the deal gets done, it's going to be I think in the $35 million, um, range plus, plus add-ons. Adam, uh, um, it's going to mean, I would assume, that they're not going to go for Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who of course they've been linked with as well because mm. ultimately in terms of strikers, you know, you've got, you've got Callum Wilson there, you've got Wood there, um, and, now, and now at Katika. So uh, I think they're laying down a marker, and they're saying, you know, we're not just going for big names, big reps, but we're looking for players who we think have a long-term upside. More PFA awards! How about that? The Young Player of the Year shortlist is Phil Foden, Connor Gallagher, Reese James, Jacob Ramsey, Kai Osaka. And Emile Smith-Rowe. Now, I'm going to say this, Don. If I had a vote, um, it would be open and shut. and It would be Phil Fulton. But feel free to disagree.
1: I will. Um, I would have added probably Trent in there as well. But I think the standout player, I think, has been Conor Gallagher. I think he's been amazing, Gab. Um, I think one that Thomas Tuchel has had a close eye on. I think Patrick Vieira's brought him on to different levels. I watch him and I think you are ready to go back to Chelsea and get in their first team and be a major player. Um, Phil Foden I mean ridiculous player I mean you watch him and he's the one that at times makes the game look very easy he flows he's graceful when he takes players on wonderful left foot scores goals these guys are in the conversation for a reason because they've all been brilliant but I would lean towards Conor Gallagher you know
0: You make a good point on Trent I can only assume that I don't know maybe he's maybe they reckon I don't know if he's aged out of it although he's still he's still he's still quite young mm. Um i make a rule with the Young Player of the Year that you can only win it once. And so once you win it, once you <laughs> won it, you know, leave space to somebody else. You can't, yeah, but you can't win it twice. Otherwise.
1: You can't win it twice. Is that the Gab rule?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. We're recognising young talent. Let somebody else win it.
1: Fair enough. Uh, sticking with the PFA Awards, I hear Rhys James' sister is a brilliant player and she's on the shortlist for the Women's, Women's Young Player of the Year Award, even though she's only played 107 minutes, Gab.
0: I've already expressed my dysfunction and dislike for the PFA awards. Um, the fact that, and look, Reese, Reese James's sister name is Lauren James. Um, I think she's a year or two younger than he is. Uh, she was in Manchester United before. I'm sure she's a phenomenal footballer, but you should not be eligible to win an award when you've only played 107 That's minutes. That's not right. I don't it? know who these voters are. I don't know if they're like, oh, look, I've heard of her or I've heard of her brother. Let me go and, and, and give her a vote. Um, if that's what ha- what's happened, it's, it's just silly. I think um, you need to actually play a season and mm-hmm. I don't think she should win it. And, but hey, these are the, the dysfunctions of the Footballer's Footballer of the Year award. Manchester City will play Liverpool in the Community Shield on July 30th, but it won't be at Wembley. We're rather, at the King Power Stadium in Leicester because Wembley's being used for the Women's Euros. Don, do you care?
1: Not really, mate. You? I mean, does it matter? Community Shield final could be anywhere, could be Old Trafford, Leicester, could be Cardiff, wherever you want to take it. I mean, uh,
0: the only the only reason this might matter a little bit is, you know, you're not going to have 90,000 fans there. So maybe instead of Leicester, the King Power, could they have chosen a bigger stadium? Um, Old Trafford springs to mind. Yeah. Um, but, you know, no, I don't, I I don't care. It's it, it's right. The, the, the Community Shield is not important. I know people in in my country, Italy, we love to... Ooh, it's like the Super Cup. Oh, it's so important. They love counting it as trophies. It's not a trophy, not a real thing. So, no, nobody cares. Go ahead, play it at Leicester.
1: I lost it. I lost it 5-4, I think, or 4-3 against uh, Cantona's lead side. So, I'm not bothered, mate. It doesn't really count. If I had won it, (laughs) I would have said, absolutely, it matters. But I lost it. Right, what's happening? I'm reading in the Telegraph that Mike Riley could be replaced as a Premier League referees with Howard Webb as one of the candidates?
0: Yeah. Um, Look, I don't think it's a secret that um, it's been a rough year for Premier League referees, maybe even a rough couple of years. Um, and according to the Telegraph, a lot of clubs are putting pressure on the PGMOL, which is the uh, which is the body that supplies and trains the referees um, for Premier League matches to go and make some major changes. They're going to add the staffing levels and they're going to um, they're gonna add i think a, a psychologist they're gonna uh, overhaul the way they um the way they operate a little bit uh, i i've met mike riley i really 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 like mike riley um as a person i think some of the problems they've had have to do with the fact that certain referees stuck around way too long there's no there's no age limits in the premier League and you know obviously we know that 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 Moss and, and Atkinson, some of these guys are are um, are moving on. Um, if there's going to be a generational change, maybe there could be a broader change. But um, you know, if I were to ask you, I mean, you watch football from around Europe, mm. do you think? the officiating in the Premier League the last two years has been as good as the football?
1: I think we're, I think we're, in my mind, obviously through COVID times and through new VAR times, I think these referees have had it tough. Um, I certainly think when you're watching some of the, the, well, a lot of the games, decisions could be better. They could be made a lot quicker. I still think, I don't know if you agree, Gab, I think there has to be communication, wherever that's, um, via audio to let the fans know what's happening inside the stadium because it feels a little bit it feels odd to me that if you're sitting on the couch indoors, you've got more information watching a game of football on TV than you have if you're a paying customer inside the stadium. You're not really sure what's going on regarding VAR. I don't know if that's anything that you think could be done or improved
0: on. I mean, that, that I agree with you there. That, that's more of a procedural thing. I think you know it would certainly help. And, and to some degree, they tried doing this kind of unofficially by the broadcasters. They should explain if we, when VAR intervenes and makes a certain decision about why that decision was made. But I think more more generally, there is kind of a, a, a generational overhaul in Premier League referees. I think there's there's been a bunch of guys who, you know, have been around for a long, long time, well before VAR. I don't know that they're necessarily suited to operating in a VAR environment. And I think the PGMOL has to be empowered to make the changes that they feel that they need to make and mm. when you've got a bunch of of older referees who've kind of been there done that i think it's harder to make those changes you're going to be more conservative um whether you need to change mike riley uh or not or simply change the way the pgm oil operates um that's a question above my pet my pay grade but mm. for me the last couple seasons as a whole um, have not been good.
1: Gab, do, do, is, is that a thing abroad when you watch Serie a and La Liga? You know, the, the, you mentioned there about the the referees in England can play or can certainly play on and, and ref at a certain level for a, for a, whatever age they want. Is there an age limit in Serie a, do you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, they follow the FIFA guidelines, which is 45. Right. And, you know, you've had... And then the reason they have those guidelines in place is... Um, it's not so much like you suddenly become a bad referee after 45, but yeah. it has to do with the legacy of, of officiating. It has to do with helping to develop yeah. kind of the next generation of, of referees, opening up spots for them. Um, it has to do with the fact that, you know, refereeing is not really a lifetime career. So it's always the assumption, even though they're professional, that these guys are going to have other jobs that they're going to want to dedicate themselves to. I think one of the issues that once referees became professional – um I and mean, you know, they could make a nice living in the Premier League. If they had side gigs, those kind of um, went by the wayside a little bit. And so, you know, these guys probably wanted to stick around past 45, a few more years so that they could make some money because some of them, I think, weren't very clear on what they were going to do next. You know, they can't all go into the PGMOL or work on referee education. Gary Southgate has said that maybe if England had shown more confidence and, quote, talked a bit more about winning the Euros from the start rather than just reaching the final, then they would have actually done it. Um, Don, do you understand what he's saying?
1: I sort of get what he's saying, but how do you measure that? Like, oh, yeah, like let's talk about it a little bit more. That means that might give us a little edge and we could actually win it. I don't know how you how you read too much into that, Gab, because if you talk about a competition and you say, yeah, we're going to win it and we're confident and you lose it, you look like a bit of a numpty. You look like a little bit of an arrogant fool. So I understand why or what Gareth Southgate's saying. I think he wants his players to express a little bit more confidence and, and actually believe in themselves a little bit more. But at the same time, it feels a little well, bit dangerous. You don't want to be arrogant. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I got two things to say to this. And look, and I say this as somebody who really genuinely likes Gareth Southgate, the same. person. Same. Um, number one, you want him to be more confident and believe they can win it. And hey, look, you're the national team coach. Why don't you talk about it? Why don't you seize the responsibility? Why don't you come out and say we were semi-finalists in the World Cup before? I think we can go and win this.
1: Pressure.
0: Um, Add num- pressure. Number two, just as important as that, it may be in the final. Don't make a bunch of defensive changes and sit back after score taking the lead, so that you invite pressure forward from the other team. Yeah. Why don't you go and try to beat them? And said, I kind of feel like he was way too defensive throughout the tournament.
1: I agree. Uh, right. Pelé has took to Instagram to send a message to Russian President Vladimir Putin calling for the end of the war in Ukraine and called the invasion wicked. Your, your take, Gab?
0: Um, like I find this interesting because Pelé is in his 80s, right? He doesn't need to do this. He really doesn't need to do this. He can sit back, enjoy his children, his grandchildren, whatever, enjoy the fact that, you know, he wakes up every day in his Pelé and yet he decides to go out and talk about this. He talked about how, how he's met. He met Vladimir Putin uh, at the 2018 World Cup and whatever. I know people say that athletes shouldn't shouldn't speak up about politics, or at least they used to say that. I think times have changed a little bit. I think a lot of people do. I think it's almost expected of people now. And and well done to Pele. At his age, he can do whatever he wants. And personally, I like the fact that he's speaking out because I think peace is a really important message here.
1: Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Um, Right, Don. That brings us to an end. Thank you so much for uh, filling in uh, for Jules. Uh, We're going to be back on Monday, or rather, COVID permitting, I'll be in the studio with Jules uh, on Monday. Um, But in any case, we will have a show for you. Uh, And until then, love the game. Love your neighbor. Love yourself.